Hey folks, welcome to what is very likely to be the very first episode of the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast, brought to you by the Coastal Conservation Association. This week we're talking about a critical issue that's going on in Galveston Bay, and that is the San Jacinto River Waste Pit Superfund site. I recently sat down with Scott Jones at the Galveston Bay Foundation to get the latest on the Superfund site and what the EPA plans to do to remove that waste pit from Galveston Bay. We hope you find this episode educational and that after listening, you'll go online to tell the EPA that you support their plans for this project. One final thing, please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Uh, Those reviews are going to help us to mold and shape the show to discuss issues that we're all interested in as fishermen and conservationists and that really will be an impact to our listeners. So please, please leave us those reviews. Okay, enough of the rambling. Let's get started with Scott Jones of the Galveston Bay Foundation. I'm here with Scott Jones with the Galveston Bay Foundation. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you, Shane. Appreciate it. Um, Appreciate you letting us come here to do this. this is kind of a unique office for the Galveston Bay Foundation. Um, why, why, why this location? And there's a reason why I'm asking you that. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. So the Galveston Bay Foundation, our our mission is to preserve, protect, and enhance the bay and its tributaries. And so we have to get out into the watershed. You know, the area that drains to Galveston Bay. So um, the Houston area is very important. You know, of course, the watershed goes all the way up past Dallas-Fort Worth, but so many of the potential pollutants can run off from land in the Houston area uh, in the five counties surrounding the bay. So we wanted to find a location that was in the middle of the watershed. I spend as much of my time up in Houston or the Woodlands or Conroe going to meetings as I do going down to Galveston Bay or Galveston Island itself. So this site is a uh, where we are near NASA, uh, down off NASA Road 1, is a temporary site. We're going to be here. We have a 48-month lease. We just moved in here a few months ago, and we are uh, building a brand-new headquarters on, Ke- uh, on Galveston Bay uh, in Kima. So we'll finally have a location that's on the water that we can use to take people out to the bay. It can be demonstration sites for our wetland restoration for our education programs and it'll be a pretty inspiring location for those of us on the staff you know that are fighting for Galveston Bay so we'll still be in the middle of the watershed as opposed to down in Galveston a lot of folks think we're in Galveston but we've always wanted to be kind of halfway between Galveston and the Houston area because of all the work we do with different groups such as yours you know y'all being up in uh, northwest Houston area yeah so that's why we're here so um have y'all started construction on that yet? We've or? closed on the land, and right now design is happening for the headquarters. And so since we do want to make it a really good place for demonstration and education, and we want it to be have the latest environmental uh, uh, lead certification and make sure it doesn't cause pollution, we're going to take our time in getting a nice design that can accommodate staff and visitors uh, to the site. And that's immediately... Uh, south of the Kima Boardwalk area, a little bit further down, uh, there's one little piece of open land left on the on the uh, shorefront in Kima, and you can see it. It's just north of Highway 96, where Highway 96 okay. hits at 146. Who gets the 
waterfront view your drone straws um, um yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll lobby for a waterfront view i told him i said working in advocacy issues you know what a fight it can be sometimes and you need to be inspired so i need that and i need some kind of meditation room there you go that'll that'll work out yeah um, so tell us a little bit about i mean you, you mentioned a few things but tell us give us an introduction into galveston bay foundation sure sure yeah galveston bay foundation we've been around since 1987 we're a 501c3 nonprofit, and so we've been working on Galveston Bay issues for over 25 years now. And I think um, something that's important about the foundation is we pride ourselves on working with everybody from other conservation environmental groups, such as your own, to industry groups, because we realize we're all in the same boat or in the same bay, affecting the same bay, and we're going to have to work together to find solutions uh, to problems that face the bay. And we we do our work, we have conservation. If, if anybody knows Galveston Bay Foundation, it's probably through uh, our conservation work, our um, Marsh Mania events where we take volunteers and we go out and we literally replant the smooth uh, cordgrass uh, out on the bay. Uh, we also do conservation with oyster reef restoration, a little bit of seagrass restoration, um, and we have an education program where we take kids out to the bay or we bring the bay to kids through hands-on uh, exhibits and, and uh, uh, things they can do in the classroom. Uh, we have water quality programs uh, and, of course, our advocacy programs. I go up to the Capitol lobby. Uh, I've been up to D.C. Bob Stokes, our president, uh, goes up to D.C. But basically, we're here to have a conversation with everybody point out, hey, we've lost a lot of wetlands, what can we do to correct that? Or in this case, we've got a, you know, we've got a toxic waste site, what can we do to make sure that's cleaned up so it doesn't impact fishing? So foundation, uh, we get funding from uh, industry, we get funding from private foundations, and then obviously we're a member-driven organization, uh, and we need those memberships to help fund all the things that we do. Um, so if folks want to get involved in Galveston Bay Foundation and y'all's activities, like, you know, what's the best avenue? Best way is to go online to galvebay.org, and in our front page we have a Get Involved tab you can click on. So you, if you want to do uh, wetland restoration, if you want to do oyster restoration, you can do that. If you want to go out and do trash cleanups, you can do it. If you want to find out about the meetings and lend your voice to advocacy issues, we'll have that on there as well. So galvebay.org, and then we have a Facebook page also where we try to keep that uh, updated, and you can find we'll announce events. So there's quite a bit you can do. You are on any other social media, like Instagram? Uh, or We'll, we'll uh, be on Twitter, but it's mainly Facebook okay. and, and Twitter. Okay. So, you know, you and I kind of got... Or, I, I'm fairly new to this realm, and um, I got thrown into this into this arena and got to meet you through of this project that's going on right now on the San Jacinto River, um, at San Jacinto River at I-10, the Superfund site there. And that's really what we want this conversation to be about today, is, is to talk about that and kind of educate uh, the public on what's going on with that and what potentially the future could hold with that Superfund site. So... Um, when when did you guys well let's back up give us a little historical perspective on that site starting back when when the 
waste was just released into the river there. Sure, yeah. So this has been going on for over 50 years now. In 1965 and 1966, Champion paper mill wastes were barged up to some pits that were operated by a company called McGinnis Industrial Maintenance Corporation. And those pits, as you mentioned, are on the San Jacinto River on the west bank immediately upstream of what's now the I-10 bridge. Back then when that was going, the I-10 bridge, I think, was just probably first being built. So 65-66, paper mill wastes um, are a problem because... When you bleach paper, you use chlorine, and you end up making something called dioxin. It's a, it's a persistent organic chemical that has some really bad properties. It can cause cancer. It can cause a variety of different illnesses. It can cause uh, developmental problems in the unborn or the young. And it's known uh, as the worst toxic chemical out there. So those paper mill wastes that had astronomical concentrations of dioxin were barged up, and then the wastes were pumped off of the uh, barges into these pits. And back then, uh, there was really no good best management practices. Um, a, you know, you had the you had to pitch right on the right on the edge of the river. And keep in mind, this is like you know a marshy area that you might expect on the edge of a river. Unlined pits. The waste was pumped into it, and basically you have this sludge, and it it goes into this pit, and then it kind of decants off some of the water. So and, that go ahead. And, and the pit, just for I guess trying to visualize it in my head, the pit is basically just a recessed earthen section with you know berms or, they or basically, dams around it. They is built that, earthen berms around it and it didn't have any kind of liner like you might see in a landfill nowadays where they try to prevent uh, materials from leaching down into the groundwater or getting out off site. So they just... It's a uh, hole in the ground. It's a hole in the ground. You know, that it, it was probably dug down a little bit, but it was more they built up the berms. Okay. And the site was about 15 acres. And, it, you know, if you look, you can go look on Google Earth. And, you know, if you go zoom in right there by the I-10 uh, bridge on the San Jacinto River and then go back in time, you'll see what it looked like. And it was basically, there was a couple different areas. You know, again, they'd pump it off into the west cell and then it would decant to the east cell. So um, there was a series of pits. And then there was another uh, northwestern area. Um, so basically just pumping waste on at the edge of the river and even back you know we went back and looked at some of the records and Harris County officials you know we saw a letter that they uh, wrote to McGinnis Industrial the ones who were operating the pit saying hey you've got black liquor leaking off your side out of your pits into the river so these docks and wastes have been able to get into the river for a long time uh, since the 60s if you had like a high water event um, and then when you uh, you have to when you talk about the history of this site, you have to talk about the subsidence that happened in the area. We pump out a lot of groundwater for industrial uses, for municipal uses, and then we also pump out hydrocarbons. And in our part of the world, when you do that, you basically uh, cause the clay layers to um, uh, be um, to collapse, and basically you have subsidence of land. And so in this area. You have, you know, 10 feet of subsidence. You could have, you know, it's a range. It just varies exactly where you are. But I understand this area, around Federal Road, around this part of this industrial area, it did sink about 10 feet. So not only did you have these 
open pits that were subject to the waste getting out when it was hit by high river flows from the San Jacinto River, starting about in the early 70s, you had about half of that pit going literally into the water. It's the eastern side that has been subsided since the 70s. So we've had this river and the sediments and then the ultimately the fish and shrimp and crabs and the other seafood exposed to this uh, dachshund for 50 years now, maybe a little less than 50 years. And um, as a result, um, dachshunds, one of the reasons we have a seafood consumption advisory uh, in parts of Galveston Bay. And again, you know, we're, we're talking about, and probably most of the listeners know, but you know, you're, if you're if you're catching uh, speckled trout, well, they've been eating smaller fish, or they've been eating shrimp, or other animals that which have been eating smaller animals. And those animals originally were down in the wastes eating little polychaete worms and other little benthic organisms, and they're taking up that dachshund. And then through the process of bioaccumulation and biomagnification, you start getting dachshund uh, in the tissues of speckled trout. Um, or crab at levels that are dangerous to humans. And there's something about, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there something about the the amount of lipids in the tissue or the fats in the tissue? Exactly. So that some fish, it'll, it'll, uh, it's more prevalent than it is in, in, in other species. That's so, right. So hardhead catfish, right? Speckled hardhead trout. catfish, speckled trout, blue crab. So, so... Let me just tell you just a little bit about the seafood advisories and to answer your question. Um, animals that do have more fat uh, in their tissues um, are going to have more dachshund or PCBs or any other toxin because those types of persistent chemicals, they reside in the fatty tissue. So you and I, if they sampled us, they'd probably find some different toxins, and that would be in the fat cells in our bodies. Thanks, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, that. well, <laughs> you look better than me, so you're, you've got less than me. Um, but so, and that's why not all fish um, in most of the bay um, have advisories. So upstream of the Fred Hartman Bridge, which is Highway 146, all species of fish and blue crab have an advisory on them and the advisory says men and uh, women above childbearing age um, are, are uh, the advisory says that uh, women of childbearing age and children shouldn't eat any species of fish or blue crab and it says that uh, men adult men and then women above childbearing age uh, can eat up to eight ounces. Okay, um, re- repeat that first part again yeah. so that it's clear for everybody. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a tough but, one. It's a tough one. So it's, the advisory, yeah, the advisory says um, for, and this is, again, this is upstream of Fred Hartman Bridge where all fish, all species of fish and blue crab uh, have advisories. The advisory is for women of childbearing age and children, you shouldn't eat any amount of the listed species and in this case again it's all species all fish. Of fish and yeah so keep in mind so women of childbearing age and children and then it also says that women above child above childbearing age and uh, adults uh, adult men should only eat eight ounces a month so Which that's is a, like a fillet it's like a fillet it's like the size of your palm so so um i'm probably straying off your original question um, but no. that is all species of fish. But if you go downstream of Highway 146 to the upper part of Galveston Bay, you're going to find that the advisory is only on speckled trout and catfish and blue crab. And that speaks to the amount of fat or lipids in their body. 
So that's why you don't have redfish listed or flounder listed. And then if you go if you go downstream of uh, Houston Point to Five Mile Cut Marker and over to Red Bluff Point, you only have advisories on catfish. And so that's the good news. The further you get away from some of these sources, such as the waste pits, it gets better. Uh, but we still have issues, and, and those those advisories on catfish in the whole bay, so that's on hardheads and, and gaff top, and then any freshwater species that come down when it's uh, uh, less saline. Um, you know, it's because of docks and then also because of PCBs. When I, when I first learned um, about the advisories, um, golly, I moved back down here in like 2006, and when I first learned about the advisories, I thought not knowing uh, the deal about the lipids and the tissue, I thought it was about like the biology of the fish, you know, age three to four redfish migrate offshore and they spend most of their life offshore flounder. You know, most of the flounder every year migrate to offshore waters and then come back in, they spend less time in the base. And you know, the uh, the biologist in me was thinking that that was the reason. And then I heard it was lipids in the tissue and I was like, okay, well that makes sense. That's yeah. The Texas department of state health services, that's the state agency that, uh, monitors uh, seafood and puts out the seafood advisories. They say that's the driving factor is the amount of fish. But of course, as a biologist, there's also some elements of the uh, life histories of different species and how long things last. So, like people always ask me, well, why don't shrimp or or uh, you know other species have uh, have um, advisories? And shrimp aren't listed just because they don't live as long. And you know how they feed, it's just different. They're not feeding on animals that have been down and uh you know not feeding on polychaete worms and those have been feeding on polychaete worms for instance yeah 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 the cockroaches of the sea yes (laughs) (laughs) so uh okay so let's move forward um i think we got into like you know the 1970s uh time frame so the the toxins were dumped into basically the river or adjacent to the river in the 1960s the land from mining and from pumping groundwater, the land has been subsiding. And um, has did anything happen at that site between, say, the 1970s and and today that 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 has contributed to us being at, at this point where we are in the project? Yeah. So the, the I believe it was um, Harris County. In the city of Houston and others were finding elevated levels of docks in, in the area, but no one could really figure out what was going on. And then the state of Texas, through the, I guess it was the old Water Commission at the time, that's now called the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, started doing studies to try to figure out what's the source of the docks, and, and they kept finding elevated um, amounts. And as a result, you know, that was when the first seafood advisories came out in that upper. Uh, upper Galveston Bay area, but they, no one still could really pinpoint the source. Well, it was in um, 2005 that Parks and Wildlife um, was going out and doing some surveying, and they found um, an area that there had been some anecdotal uh, talk about some old waste pits. Well, sure enough, they were out in 2005, and they found uh, what at the time looked like a peninsula. You know, after the land subsided just north of the I-10 bridge, there's a little piece of land sticking out. I remember I used to see that when i go driving before I started working for the Galveston Bay Foundation, but I would drive on I-10, and I'd see people fishing out 
uh, on this peninsula area, and it was there was trees, there was a shoreline, and so like if you were driving if you were driving west back in Houston I ten, you would see this right when you crossed over San Jacinto River, and people were out there fishing. There were people in boats around there, so I thought, wow, that's a pretty good place to fish. Well, that's the old waste pits. And when Parks and Wildlife went there, they have I have pictures in some of my slideshows. You can see this grayish ooze or this grayish shoreline. It doesn't look like a normal shoreline with sand. It's gray. That's the waste. And you could see trails that people would take to go bank fishing there. They were literally walking on the waste and fishing right on top of the waste. Wow. And so, and that's, that's awful because, you know, folks didn't know about it. And this goes back to some of the issues with this whole site. You know, McGinnis Industrial Maintenance Corporation had this site, and then they just basically walked away from it, and it was never communicated to anybody. It's just kind of like out of sight, out of mind. Well, people were fishing and crabbing in that area. And the problem with dioxin is you can get it through contaminated seafood, like we talked about, and if it's contaminated speckled trout or you name it. You can also get it through accidentally ingesting it. So say you're a little kid with your family out on this site and you're crabbing, kids are going to play in the mud and the sand and then they're going to put their hands in their mouths. They were ingesting dioxin. And then the other way is you can get it. The third way is you absorb it through your skin. That's just called dermal, dermal absorption. So people were directly exposed to that dioxin. And that's in addition to the terrible problem of it getting out into the food web and then getting up to the fish and uh, that we love to catch or the crab that people want to want to catch. Um, so, um, so somebody just going out, hey, I'm going to take my kids out for a weekend. We're right. going to go fish on this point in the San Jacinto River, and they're wet wading out there. Yeah, and they put their hands down in the dirt, right, or or in the sediment. They're basically having dioxins absorbed through their skin yes, just they from can, that contact. Just from that contact. And so, you know, the your question was how did this come about? So they found so high concentrations of dioxin were found in sediments and in seafood. Parks and Wildlife saw this and they reported it to um, Texas uh, Texas Commission on Environmental Quality and then it was reported to the EPA and from that investigations started happening by the EPA to determine if this site, uh, you know, determine, try to find out the history of it and see if it qualified for to be become on the, the national priorities list or the super fund list where the uh, EPA starts putting resources into it and they try to find the responsible parties. So that's what happened. So 2005 it was discovered and then through this process of discovery and the administrative uh, steps that have to take, by 2008, this site, the San Jacinto River Waste Pits, was added to the Superfund list. And the Superfund list really just is just the worst toxic waste sites. And this was deemed one of the worst toxic waste sites. So I, I, I think we should take a moment, and I wanted to do it at the public meeting the other night, and I think we'll talk about that in a second, but like, I think Parks and Wildlife should be at least thanked or, or you know... It, you know they're out there just doing their job, and, and they and they did some digging and found this site. But I'm not sure how much credit they they get for us being at this point where we are today. Because had they not found that, you're right. Anyway, we, we wouldn't be here. We yeah we we very good chance we might not be here. So yeah, and you know that's that's true. I haven't really heard anybody thank the park thank Parks and Wildlife, and I honestly I haven't really done it. I've thanked 
the EPA for being here and having this process to help us try to remediate this. But yeah, uh, kudos to Parks and Wildlife Department. And I know there's folks at the state, other state agencies that have helped. And then those folks, you know, like I said, we heard these anecdotal evidence that there was a site out there. Well, I think those people were probably calling agencies, including Parks and Wildlife. So yeah. that was probably part of it too. Yeah. And so that's, that's, you know, that's a lesson for all of us. You know, and I've said this before, when I've worked on different issues on the Bay, someone will call us and say, hey, the seagrasses in West Bay are being covered up by dredge spoil. And so we wouldn't have known about that, you know, unless we happen to be out there working on a restoration site in the area. But when folks call the eyes on the water, and a lot of times it's the fishermen, that really helps us. I think that's an important point because a lot of folks, whether it's on the bay or on the land, but, you know, passerbys will see something or notice something, and they assume that, oh, well, someone else is going to say something, or I'm sure someone's taking care of that. Right. But there's something to be said about speaking up when you see something that's not right in this world. You know, let your voice be heard. That's and, right. And speak up and get in touch with the right people. You know, folks like like you guys that can put boots to the ground and make something happen. Yeah, um, really. You know, <clears throat> our st- our state doesn't really put enough resources into monitoring enforcement and enforcement. So, you know, we've got limited number of staff in our state agencies covering huge swaths of areas and in waterways. And so we need as many eyes on the water as we can. You know, and, you know, one thing that's related, since we just talked about it, um, Galveston Bay Foundation does have a uh, Galveston Bay Action Network uh, pollution reporting system. And uh, you can go to our website or you can just just google galveston bay action network and that's if you see something you can go on your phone and you can report that and that sends out a a an alert to the appropriate agencies to take you know to take action so galveston, that's a great resource galveston yeah. bay action network okay all right so um yeah we got up through uh we you know, epa's on it super fun site right and They've, they've done their investigation, and um, where do we go from there? Right. So there's, you know, in the Superfund process, there's quite a bit of um, paperwork that needs to be done. The EPA needs to try to um, find the responsible parties, uh, try to verify the information, and they do what's called a remedial investigation. Basically, they try to learn the history of the site, they try to learn uh, what toxins are in the site, what's the surrounding area, and what the pathways of exposure of, of a toxin are to uh, to people in the environment. And so, you know, that took some time from, you know, 2008 through uh, 2010, 2011. They were working on those kinds of things, and they did where they were able to determine from looking at records that it was McGinnis Industrial Maintenance Corporation operated the site, Champion Paper Mill produced the waste that were over there. Um, and then you have to add a little history. McGinnis Industrial Maintenance Corporation, this site was acquired by Waste Management. So now Waste Management is also part of the responsible parties. And then um, International Paper bought that old Champion Paper Mill. So they're now on the list of responsible parties. So that was part of the process. And again, the remedial investigation happened. There's a whole series of documents that were produced. And on our Galveston Bay uh, website, we have a uh, 
toxic waste sites. It says how we, we've got a tab that says how we protect the bay, and then you go down to toxic waste sites. And you'll basically, the one we're working on now is the waste pits. And you can go down and you can see all the documents that were produced. We, we did get a grant from the EPA to review all the cleanup documents and then put them in a form of a short summary in layman's terms so you could understand it. So we're taking thousand page documents and trying to boil them down to 10 pages. And that was done with the help through some super fun experts we worked with up at the Houston Advanced Research Super Center. fun for dummies. Yeah, like super myself. fun for dummies. So yeah, you can well, understand it. Yeah, and this this stuff's this stuff's uh, complicated. Yeah. So you know there were all sorts of things I mentioned. You know, uh, toxicological studies. There was, a, you know, how exposures could happen. There was a public health assessment, and then. You know, EPA started talking about, well, what are the possible solutions to this? But this, again, took took some time. But one of the big things that happened since this site, you know, I mentioned how people could go on the site. And I also mentioned how this, this dioxin was exposed to the river, and then it gets into the sediments, and then it gets into the food chain, including the fish and crab. The EPA saw that this site was so dangerous that, that they called for a temporary capping of this site. And... The technical term is a time-critical removal action. The main parts in that that's, uh, terminology is time-critical. There was no removal, and that's just part of the EPA terminology, but it was time-critical, and the EPA directed the responsible parties to design and construct a temporary cap to prevent the further release of dioxin and to prevent people from coming in contact with it. So um, that started in uh, 2010, I believe, um, and that cap was completed in the summer of 2011. And what that cap is, and folks can't see it, but I've got some, I have some show and, I have some show and tell for Shane here. There's uh, basically this cap. You just got to imagine that, penin- that peninsula area I described that had trees on it. Well, the responsible parties had to go basically grab that area, you know, pull out all the vegetation, smooth it out some, um, and then try to solidify some of the waste in some of the areas where they had to bring construction equipment on, uh, but solidifying some of the waste with concrete. Mm-hmm. And then basically what they did was they put a, a layer of a geotextile material, and I'm handing it to Shane here, and it's just a, you know maybe about an eighth of an inch thick or maybe a little bit bigger. It's just this thick woven material. This is like super duty, super duty landscape fabric. Yeah, yeah, is. yeah, this yeah, is and that's like, yeah, that's the way it was described the other night at the public meeting. I think that's a pretty good. Yeah, it, it allows you know water can get through it, but basically that type of material uh, is laid on. Um, the areas of the pits um, that are below water and above water. Um, and then there's another layer that's put on it, and this is like about an eighth of an inch uh, geomembrane. It's impervious. It's like a plastic, a thick yeah, plastic. Yeah, this is like um, high-density polyethylene yeah, liner exactly. material. Yeah, exactly. They use this kind of stuff um, in oil fields for right. like frack ponds and things like that's that. That's right. And in this case, instead of being at the bottom of a, of a pit or something, this goes on top of the waste um, but keep in mind that geomembrane that you would hope would be covering toxic waste, they could only put that on the areas of the pits that were above water. Keep in mind, more than half of this pit's underwater, so it only had that geomembrane. And then on top of that were rocks, basically rocks anywhere from maybe three inches in diameter, and it varied on different parts of the pits according to the engineering design. But basically, you put on that about a foot layer thick of rock, anywhere from like three inches 
the biggest rock was about 10 inches. And before I finish the cap construction, one thing to keep in mind, we've always been worried about there's the northwest corner of the cap. And you'll if you look on Google Earth, you'll look you'll see an area immediately northwest where it's like chunks of the river have been taken out. Well, that's where sand mining happened, I think up through the 90s. And when sand mining, you know, there's mining all up and down the San Jacinto River. And in this area, they were digging right into the old berm of the waste pit in the area where you would have had the highest concentrations of waste where they were first pumped off of the old, of the barges under this western cell. And it's this problematic northwestern corner that's steep and has no liner at all. In that place, the only thing they could put was rock. And um, so this cap was placed on there uh, in 2011. Just remember that problematic northwest corner. And then from that time period on, you know, the EPA was working with the responsible parties to try to uh, get from them what's called a feasibility study. And in the feasibility study, bottom line is you list what are the possible solutions for this site. Mm -hmm. And the solutions can range and they're required to put a no action alternative in all the way to a full removal action. And what's so important is this was in about the 2014 timeframe that the draft feasibility study came out that was produced by the responsible parties. That's the way this works. The responsible party gets to, you know, gets to do the work under the direction and oversight of the EPA. They pay for this stuff. Well, this is when we've, we at Galveston Bay Foundation, we've been a part of this whole process since uh, probably about 2009 when we were pushing for this site to get a quick fix, some, some kind of quick uh, response and quick treatment. So we've been working on it for quite a while, but in 2014, when that, when that feasibility study came out, I saw what the responsible parties put forth. And what they put forth was, not, was disingenuous. They had a full removal alternative like they're supposed to, but Envision trying to do a full removal of this site, doing open water dredging with like a clamshell dredge, like you might see people doing dredging of, of uh, different channel areas and only use a silk curtain to try to prevent the sediment or the dioxin from getting from off site when from escaping. That's just not reasonable. No. And when I saw that, I said, is this really your full removal alternative? Well, they had that in there. And then they had other types of, of alternatives from you know solidifying the waste down to no action. But the one that the responsible parties recommended it they did a white paper at the same time they recommended containment and they called it it's called alternative 3n you'll see that if you go to the superfund documents but alternative 3n was to um, enhance this temporary cap by simply adding more rock in certain areas where erosion of the rock had been found and keep in mind that the erosion of that rock happened in like a 10-year uh, storm event when this cap was purported to work uh, to protect in a 100-year storm event. So a 10-year storm event caused the first erosion that we saw where the rock was moved off of the liner in 2012. And then since then, you know, to fast forward a little bit, that, that rock cap has had just continual problems. The most, um, the most serious of which happened in that problematic northwest corner I told you about mm -hmm. in December of 2015. You know, we had a lot of flooding rains in 2015. And the community was saying, EPA, are you sure this cap's working? You know, the EPA sent a dive team out there in response, and they found a hole 
of about 25 feet by 20 feet on that northwest corner where there was no rock. And basically that sediment, that grayish ooze that I told you about, that was exposed to the river. Well, no one could explain, no one knew why it happened. The EPA was trying to understand why it happened. The responsible parties were trying to understand what happened. And it's, and it's you know, contingent on the, the, the responsible parties should be the ones to know what happened. They don't know. So the theories were it could have been a barge strike or it could have been a construction defect. Defect That place may never have had rock placed on it. It could have been something else. It could have been the rock slumping off the side. But the problem is, you know, we just don't know. The EPA, you know, it wasn't their fault. It, it wasn't the EPA's fault that it happened. Um, but their best guess was that it was a construction defect. So, so the, the bottom line is this river was exposed to that dioxin ever since that hole was there. And, you know, when the EPA dive team went out there, a di you know, the divers, it's not that deep. The diver would get off a ladder uh, off the boat and step down. And where, he, where this diver expected to step on a rock, and he didn't. He sank down into the ooze. You know, he's wearing protective gear, but yeah. he sank in the stuff. So the responsible parties were trying to tell us, hey, this, this site's working, you know, even though there's a hole in it. And I say if a diver can sink in the waste can't all the little benthic organisms that burrow down into the bay bottom that we all know about like clams and worms if a diver can a diver can be exposed to it then certainly the the organisms can be exposed to it and so basically there still was exposure and yeah. it was getting into the food chain and the cap has basically failed for the past five years yeah it's there's been i counted i went i went and looked at the reports there's a total of 31 instances now where either the rock was missing or in many cases it was just um it was too thin or you had the you had the the uh that membrane exposed that i told you about or you had areas where there is none that northwest corner where there is no rock and so my problem is we haven't had any huge flood events we haven't had a hurricane here if the rock can be moved from these smaller events, what's going to happen when a hurricane comes in? And it's not just the storm surge. It's the wind-driven waves on top of a hurricane that are just, you know, say they're whipping around the eye of a storm, and they're coming around from the east, and then, you know, as a storm moves, it varies, you know, from the east, from the northeast, from the north, from the northwest. You can remember how the winds move around a hurricane. Yeah. And that's just smashing up against this cap in the I-10 uh, bridge footing or levee that's right behind it just washing over this area so that's what we said you know since 2014 when we saw the responsible parties put forth as their removal option and as their containment option we said we just don't trust this to work forever um, so we have an issue um, you know this all gets back to your question of what's happened you know since discovery and since the cap these different studies have happened and, um, you know, not only did we see an issue and others that um, are concerned about this issue see problems, but the EPA saw a problem. And they directed the responsible parties to, you know, go back and revise some of their feasibility study and address some of these issues. Well, that didn't happen. And ultimately, the EPA took over the final revision of the feasibility study. And they added something very important. They added a reasonable full removal option um, the, the removal option that was um, proposed by the responsible parties was called 6N. What the, the uh, EPA um, directed was that there would be an alternative 6N asterisk. Well, the asterisk is important because that means you're going to add best management practices like uh, earthen berms or sheet piles or coffer dams to isolate the site 
and then try to remove the waste. Contain it first. Contain it first. And I mean, then. again, we were so just so uh, disappointed in the responsible parties removal option with open water dredging with a clamshell, you know, with a silk curtain. And lo and behold, when they did they did some analysis, they find oh this isn't this this isn't going to work. We better go with containment. Well, of course, you front ended loaded the your equations. The six in asterisk with containment and then you uh, you know you isolate it like you said and then you can dewater it and you can excavate it in the dry in most places well as it turns out the the uh, Corps of Engineers you know went and looked at different uh, let me back up the EPA asked the Corps of Engineers to do a third-party review well they did a third-party review of a lot of what the responsible parties put forth and they also looked at this new 6N and they found that um, containment could work but only if it was intact and the problem is is that this waste is going to take 750 years to um, degrade to a to a concentration that's not toxic and in 750 years how many hurricanes are we going to have how many floods are we going to have and then there's potential for barge strikes there's a there's a uh, barge fleeting uh, uh, service immediately uh, north of this site so what the what the core study said was the uncertainties were so high that you couldn't model the impacts. Um, they did go ahead and try to simulate the uh, a flood that happened back in 1994, and they tried to simulate Hurricane Ike. And what they found was that 80 percent of the cap was eroded, severely eroded. Um, so, you know, and then and then the um, 80%, wait, 80% of the current cap or 80% of the new cap it, it's design? 80, 80% of the current cap, but the new cap design really is just adding a little rock around the periphery on some edges. So so we don't trust that. Right. But I will say, so the EPA did go ahead and do some analysis that went beyond the Corps of Engineers report. They have found that this new alternative 6N um, would actually only result in maybe a 0.2% release of dioxin in the worst case when they're trying to remove it. That's versus a 29% release if the cap was um, destroyed by a hurricane. And that would result in a, approximately 140 times the amount of dioxin being released. That's a pretty significant difference. It's very significant because dioxin is, is very dangerous. It doesn't take very high concentrations to make you sick. There's no safe amount of dioxin for you or I to consume. It's just, there's no, no such thing. And just keep in mind, the dioxin uh, in these pits, it's about 220 times a safe standard in sediments. So the the bottom line is dioxin is extremely toxic. It doesn't take much. And we can't risk having a catastrophic release due to a hurricane or due to the river changing course. You know, back in 1994 when we had these uh, a big flood event, it was a 100-year flood event, it cut new channels in oxbows upstream of this side around banana bend if those know the area uh, there was a new channel cut it was about 500 feet wide and it was about 15 feet deep so this site is also and that was that was where a lot of uh, you say channel that's i mean i'm envisioning like a river 500 feet wide 510 feet wide and 15 feet deep that yeah. that was a result of a flood that's in 1994 and keep in mind around that banana bend area sand mining had happened just like sand mining has happened adjacent to this oxbow. Of course, now you got I-10 there, but it's still just another meandering part of the river. 
And as you and I know, rivers want to change course. Yeah. And again, keep in mind that 750-year figure. I can't even wrap my head around 750 years. When you think of what can happen in this site um, until the year 2766, that's just mind-boggling. We've had, I think, 25 hurricane strikes in the last 150 years uh, in this upper Texas coast area. How many more are we going to have? Yeah. You know, we also do have the issue of sea level rise, so that's going to change things. And rivers, again, they want to move. So this, I, I think what this boils down to, when we, um, when Galveston Bay Foundation did our research with uh, Superfund experts at the Houston Adventure Research Center, we looked at EPA's own guidance for trying to contain waste in a, a water environment. And what, it, what their guidance said was, you can try to contain low-level waste in a calm environment. You shouldn't try to contain high-concentration high waste in a high-energy environment. These concentrations are astronomical, so this is high-concentration, and this environment is, ex is extremely high-energy on a tidal river on the upper Texas coast uh, where you've got so much potential from, uh, of, of failure mechanisms from hurricanes or floods and they just this was something we just found out at the thursday night meeting i heard it for the first time the uh it was just discovered there's an eight foot uh, uh gouge uh, or eight foot scour area immediately to the east of the pits in an area that the responsible parties have been trying to tell us is depositional where you know we're, we're getting sediments building up so that'll just make this site even more safe over time as sediments build up well you got an eight-foot scour right next to it. This this isn't homogenous. This is a very dynamic system. And th they just attribute that to some late spring, early summer rains, right. basically, right? Right. So what's going to happen when we get stronger, stronger storm events and, and higher flows? So yeah. the bottom line is we're not convinced. We we understand there's a risk of removal, but we think the risk of trying to contain this for 750 years is much higher, and you can't even model. Uh, these hurricanes, the hurricanes are going to get stronger. Even if they don't get stronger, if you get a Category 5 surge here, that could be bad news along with winds. So there's there's so many different scenarios where we could have a failure mechanism. And, and what I said at the public meeting the night kind of sums it up for Galveston Bay Foundation. We'll take our chance on a controlled release with isolating berms and sheet piles being taken place versus an uncontrolled... Um, um, uh, we'll take we'll take our chances on a controlled removal with isolation in place through berms and sheet piles versus an uncontrolled release if you have a hurricane to hit you know it's you know if you have if you have a catastrophic release there's nothing stopping it once it starts there's no way you can stop it yeah. if you're removing it and a and a flood is supposed to come it's forecasted high rains well basically you First of all, you isolate it, and then you break it up into small parts to remove it, and then you, you shut in areas if you think there's a problem coming. And you certainly don't do a removal during hurricane season. Right. I mean, you're not going to take on the whole project at once. You're going to do it, I envision it being done section or, or piecemeal. You right. don't want to uncover the entire thing. You just work on it as you can. And, and I think it was brought up at the, at the meeting, you know, during during seasons when you have more risks, involved with weather and environmental reasons you right. basically take less risks 
during the removal. That's right. During the fall and, and, and early winter, you don't have that many environmental risks from flooding and things right. like that. You know, you can get away with doing a little Right. You can vary the size of the area you're working on. And this has been done in other parts of the country. And you, you time it right. You have contingencies. You have backfill ready to cover up places. You know, and maybe it's going to cost more, but what's the value of Galveston Bay's recreational fishery? What's the value of the commercial fishery? What's the value of the health of those who consume the fish and crab from the bay? That's well, and that's the, probably the most important reason is right there is because you have people living in these communities that have been exposed to these docks and some of them their entire lives. And we heard it at the public meeting. And, and, and just sitting back in the audience and listening to their, to their health problems and what they believe is from the dioxins and it certainly sounds like there's a lot of potential for some of those cancer patients and things like that to have basically been uh their their sickness is a result of, of living in that area and being exposed to that and looking at it just from that perspective without worrying about economics or anything else it's the right thing to do it, it's it, a no-brainer to me it's a no-brainer so yeah i mean it's a uh, I talked to, you know, we had a small grant uh, from the General Land Office to put out some seafood advisory signs in the area a few years ago. Um, it was, you know, related to this site, but there's, you know, there's other sources of pollutants in the bay. But in the course of doing that, when I go out to fix signs or just check on them, I'll see people out there fishing and crabbing in the area. And a lot of these folks are subsistence fishermen. You know, they're supplementing their diet with the fish and crab that they get from this area and, and there's a place just to the west of the site called sandy lake and it's got an outlet that goes out to uh, the old river so there's a lot of tidal movement I mean, they were catching trout they're catching redfish they're catching crab every time i go there there's somebody fishing and i'll talk to them and i'll say hey you know you know i have the signs in spanish and english and i'll communicate to them i mean are you worried about this do you know about it and they say oh no we're not keeping it but I see their coolers right there. Yeah. I know they're keeping. And a lot of times they're worried because I think I'm, I'm with the government or something. But, or, they, you know, just worried about someone they don't know coming up and talking to sure. them. But others have talked to you and said, look, you know, this is how I feed my family. And that's what really concerns me when I see the kids or if I see a woman or if I see a pregnant woman. And going back and thinking about the advisories of why it's so docs and so bad for the unborn or, or the young because of the developmental problems and the other diseases, it really bothers me. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and then, you know, in the past, people were exposed to it. Thankfully now, you know, that they do have it temporarily capped that has cut down the direct exposure of people. But people tell me, man, we used to play there. We used to fish right there. We, you know, wade ski, around there, jet ski. ski. So, yeah, this it's the right thing to do. And I think the, I think the companies uh, have an opportunity to do the right thing, and we just can't take a chance on this cap trying to work uh, for 750 years when it already has a bad track record. They can try to beef it up. They can try to put a little more rock on it, but they can't add liner to that northwest corner. I mean, that's always going to be that way. Um, we've just seen too many problems. And, and there's probably other things, and we're worried about things we haven't seen. Right. So I, I'm just not willing you know, to risk Yeah, you could say we're still in discovery mode here. Right. Um, in addition to trying to do some remediation, you know, there's probably some things that we'll find out moving forward right um, especially as i think as they hopefully we go to a removal process 
who knows what they're going to find in that once they start removing that. That's right. So, um, so and it's, it's, you know, and it's really, you know, it's this 15 acre site. It's 152,000 cubic yards. It can be done. It's not really that deep. You know, it's not, this, this isn't, this, this can be done. And again, it's been done in other parts of the country. So we were at the meeting, was it just last week, right? Was, yes. Yeah, last week. Last Thursday. Last Thursday. So um, that was kind of interesting that, um, well, I thought it was pretty awesome that you had such a high turnout. I guess it's not to be unexpected because it's such a hot, hot button issue. But a lot of people there, pretty much standing room only. A few people um, spoke up on on just keeping it capped mm-hmm. or improving the cap. But, the you know, 95% that, that spoke up and, and submitted a verbal comment were for um, a removal, full removal. And, um, you know, I, I spoke on the part of Coastal Conservation Association. You spoke on the part of Galveston Bay Foundation. But there's another group that's involved here, and that's that's led a grassroots effort. So just briefly, if you could just speak speak to that. Yeah, that's the San Jacinto River Coalition, and that's headed by Jackie Young. And, and she has been a tireless worker on this site. And they are from the community jackie's originally from highlands her parents had a little uh, farm slash ranch there in highlands and her dad uh, got sick and she got sick you know and um, she got involved in uh, this whole issue after her sickness and hearing about other people have been sick and you know and, and it's still hard to say what causes the different sickness but Anyway, uh, Jackie got involved in that group, that grassroots coalition. They're based in Highlands and Channel View and Baytown, and they've been doing a great job of going out to the neighborhood, letting people know about the site and letting them know about the latest uh, uh, documents, the cleanup documents, and then asking them questions, you know, you know, do you have any illnesses in your family and the like. So uh, Jackie and the San Jacinto River Coalition have been very active in you know, we've got a pretty good mailing list that I've been sending to through the foundation, but I do believe that so many of those folks that go to these meetings are because of the work of the San Jacinto River Coalition to rally the community. And that's a big part of an EPA cleanup. One of the criteria they look at is community acceptance of the cleanup alternative or the proposed cleanup. And the community overwhelmingly has said, as you mentioned, I, that's the figure I came up with my head, at least 95% of the people are calling for removal it just makes sense just like you and I've been saying and there were a few um, that called for uh, capping and I'm sure some people really believe you know they're just worried about a removal action um, but really you know the uh, keep it cap group we still haven't kind of we still don't really know their sources of funding and they've put a lot of money out there and that's what I said in my comments I don't want the moneyed interests uh, efforts to trump the science in this your own EPA your own science that shows that uh, removal is the best option so uh, yeah thank goodness for San Jacinto River Coalition for CCA Texas you guys were instrumental in getting the fishermen to to become aware of this issue and send in letters and the foundation we've been doing the same you know with our broad coalition so it's been a nice it's been a nice team to try to to deal with this and we need to deal with this Remove it because if that's the only solution where we can finally maybe rest a little bit on this particular side, otherwise it's going to be hanging over our head and our our kids and their kids and so on. I mean, how many generations are there in 750 years? That's that's not right. We need to take care. This is our this is our responsibility to take care of. So kind of put this in perspective for me a little bit with projects that you've worked on um, 
in your in your tenure here and I, I, I don't know that necessarily I, maybe I don't appreciate it enough and I certainly feel like the public doesn't appreciate it enough but this is a pretty huge deal right I mean this is significant yeah this we've got a known source of pollution and talk you know according to different scientists this can be 30 to 60 percent of the dioxin problem in the bay we don't we don't know exactly, but even if we're on the lower end, that is a huge source of dioxin. It's a third. It's a the- third. Um, and the main thing is we've got this opportunity right now to take care of this one. If it hadn't been for the Superfund process, then we wouldn't have the opportunity to clean this up. So to us, this is huge. And I'll give you an example. Um, until last December, pesticides were listed as one of the contaminants in that seafood advisory upstream of Highway 146. Well, when DDT was banned and its uh, derivatives were banned and then there was different uh, herbicides and fungicides and insecticides that were banned, once you got those out of the environment, nature could start healing itself. These things are persistent, but it takes some time, but they can either be covered up by clean sediment that rains down on it or they can just naturally degrade. And as a result of the removal of the pesticide sources, pesticides were removed as a contaminant of concern. The state health department wasn't finding the pesticides in the tissues of the fish and crab anymore at any le- at levels that were dangerous. So I'm envisioning we get this site taken up, then that's going to start leading us in the right direction until that dioxin starts degrading in these other little hot pockets we have in the bay, and then eventually dioxin can be removed as one of the one of the contaminants. So this is big. We want to take advantage of this. And, of course, for the people that live around there and that were directly exposed to it, getting this site addressed is is uh, critical, you know, or else these people could still be out there yeah, absolutely. coming in direct contact. So, yeah, we need to get this taken care of. And, again, we just we just can't. The, the risk analysis says that trying to contain this in this environment is just not a reasonable thing to do. So we have a we have an opportunity now until and it's late October now almost November, uh, November twenty eighth right 28th. is the last day for public comment. That's right. And then, and and then the EPA will basically taking all the comments that they've received and all the questions that they've had asked to them, try to answer those questions, review the comments. And then come up with their final determination in early 2017. That's exactly which could be all the way till April, I guess. I don't know what early 2017 exactly means. Exactly, we don't know. We don't know either. But you know, early early 2017 is what we heard as well. So who knows? Maybe that could happen as early as January, late January or February. Yeah. So you you have you hit the nail on the head. We need folks to send in comment letters to the EPA. Now and through November 28th, this is the official uh, the official comment period. And thankfully, we had a 60-day comment period. So you still have, you know, uh, a little over a month to go to get your comments into the EPA. And I imagine on your website, y'all will probably be putting up some information. Yeah, well, we, um, we sent an email out to all of our 70-plus uh, thousand members in Texas where there's a direct link to where they can just hit a button and type a short no quick note mm-hmm. and and submit the comment um so i want to talk about how they can do it through the galveston bay foundation's website right. on if you go to san jacinto wastepits.com that's one word san jacinto wastepits.com that's our remove 
San Jacinto River Toxic Waste page. And on that page, I'm literally right now in the process of updating a sample letter uh, that you can use. Um, you can use it uh, in the exact same language or better yet, you know, just put a little quick note in there somewhere about, you know, how you fish or crab or whatever, how you utilize and love the bay. And so I'll have a sample letter on that on that page. And it'll have the uh, email address and the mailing address uh, and then an online link to the EPA portal where you could submit comments. So I've already got that page. It kind of lists a, a summary of, of what Shane and I have been talking about today, you know, about why the site calls for containment uh, or calls for removal. So we'll have a uh, we'll have a statement of why this site uh, calls for removal, and then you'll have an opportunity to to look at that uh, letter. And that can and also I think if you if if you if you would, the letter as a resource I think is a great thing to do because yeah. it makes it so easy for people for people to uh, submit something. Um, if you did a Google search for San Jacinto waste pits, uh, EPA's website would also come up. Right. And uh, they have a portal and a link. So right. you can email, you can snail mail. Um, or you can do the EPA's online portal. you can do the portal. EPA's online portal. Yeah, so the, the, just to let you know. So, so again, our website is sanjacintowastepits.com. Or you could just remove, you could probably just Google remove San Jacinto waste and it'll come up. Or you can go to EPA's webpage directly. That's epa.gov backslash tx backslash sjrwp. Um, so, uh, again, we'll have that link on our webpage as well. But, yeah, there's between CCA's uh, webpage, uh, there's our webpage, there's a... There's other groups that have it. San Jacinto River Coalition has a web page. The Harris County Attorney's Office has a web page. Um, so we'll have plenty of uh, opportunities for folks to submit their comment in support of removal. And, we, and, I, and I think the EPA did a really good thing here. They, they took over the feasibility study writing when they saw the deficiencies and what the responsible parties were doing. They asked for a real full removal alternative they asked the Corps of Engineers for a third-party review. They've been doing a good job on this. And then on Thursday night when they announced, you know, when they had the public meeting and, and, and laid out the reasons, the very uh, logical reasons for removal, that I, I, can just, I just need to applaud EPA, and we want you all to support that proposed plan. Well, that's, that's you know, I think it's very – I thought the EPA did a great job at that meeting as well. And um, meetings like that can, can oftentimes get out of hand. But the, the officials that were there, the moderator that was there, I thought just did a great job of keeping everything. Yeah, Mary Jane uh, Naquin, she does a great job she at did. facilitating. She just does facilitating of all different types of uh, meetings and controversial issues, yeah. trying to get people trying to get people to listen to one another. I told her after the meeting, I was like, I didn't know her name, but I, I introduced myself and said, "You did a great job because this, you know, this thing could have got out of hand really easily." And That's right. She kept it reined in. Yeah, so. there's a lot of passion around this. There's a lot of folks um, that are really worried about this site and they want to see it uh, remediated once and for all. Okay, so uh, wrapping up here, the the EPA will come out with a ruling, um, their final decision, I should say, mm-hmm. early next year. But we're really looking at at least what a a four-year process before that's right it's removal begins or before 
it, yeah. it's out of the bay. Yeah, actual actual removal probably won't start until about 2020 at the earliest. So when, um, you know, we had a conference call with the EPA, um, I guess it was the day uh, the day they announced the their proposal back in September. They said it would take anywhere for two to four years to take care of the administrative aspects and the legal aspects. So to break that down a little bit, they're going to have to go through like enforcement negotiations. They'll have to work with the responsible parties. That'll be 27, 2017. And then the actual design of this removal action, assuming that that's what they're going to go for. So let's, let's work hard to get those comment letters and cross our fingers that it happens. That engineering design will happen in 20, 2018 and 2019. And then the actual removal could start in 2020. 2020. So correct me if I'm wrong. Even so even if that administrative process gets bogged down, eventually, because of the, the site's designation, the EPA is going to get it out one right. way or if they do go with full removal. Right. Whatever corrective action they come up with, it's going to happen. That's right, because it's the, the whole idea of the Superfund program is you try to identify these bad sites, try to characterize them, and then try to find the responsible parties. And in Ideally, the responsible parties agree to this, these findings, and they pay for the cleanup that has been prescribed by the EPA based on the science. But sometimes you don't have a responsible party anymore. Maybe a, a company's gone out of business. They don't have the resources. Well, the Superfund uh, process, the trust fund, the monies that have gone into this trust fund pay for cleanups. So in a perfect world, responsible parties would pay for it. But if nothing else, this site's going to be addressed. And then they'd have to go try to seek reimbursement after the fact. Right, right. Yeah. When I read that little bit, I was a bit relieved because I was, I was thinking and some of our some of our membership was thinking, oh boy, here we go. We're going to be 10 to 20 years in, in lawsuits and, right. you know, these administrative things that go on and, you know, this is never going to happen. Right. I, I know. Yeah, that's an understandable concern, but I'm, I feel good about this. Uh, to me, like you said, it, it's a no-brainer. This just... This is just not the place to try to contain waste. We've got to remove it. So I think given the science and given the fact that the EPA was really uh, taking a hard line, I think, with the responsible parties, um, I think that's a good sign. Um, and it'll be cleaned up, and I'm, I'm hoping, I'm, I know there's good folks with these companies, um, and hopefully um, they'll see fit to make sure that they uh, take care of their end of the bargain. Well, Scott, you, I think I'm just going to leave this equipment with you oh. and just <laughs> let you run with the show i mean you did a great job i appreciate well you, no you know, sharing this information no i appreciate you great questions um and i think you've really done a great service for the members of cca texas and the broader you know galveston bay and even texas uh community everybody uh, this is a very valuable bay you know it's number one in texas for the recreational fishing and the commercial fishing and we need to protect it do the best we can absolutely so, thank you agree with you 100 percent. all right hey real quick how did you um how did you get into this role like what led you to where you are today in your career yeah just well curious about that. well i mean going back you know i grew up in southwest houston and i was always interested in the outdoors and fished and all that used to, but the main thing was i was playing in the ditches in southwest houston started seeing all the critters in there got a biology degree and you know those of us with just a biology degree, you got to do what you got to do. But eventually, I ended up working for. Where'd you go to school? I went to UT Austin. UT? Okay. I got an aquatic biology degree, um, and uh, I ended up, you know, it was 
kind of a roundabout way, but I ended up working for the Galveston County Health District uh, based out of Lamarck, uh, not too far from here. And I started, I was doing sampling. And then I, after a couple years, I got a job with the uh, Texas, uh, I guess it was probably called the Texas Natural Resources Conservation Commission at that time. Now it's Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. I was working in Austin. I was working in water quality standards. So uh, worked there for a while, and then I got a job in 2000 at the Galveston Bay Estuary Program, and yeah. that's part of TCEQ, but it's a non-regulatory program, and that was great. That's because a I, national estuary program. Yeah, right? one of the 28 national estuary programs in the country. So I worked, I worked a little bit of everything at that job. I was there for eight years, and that's such a great place because that's where all these different scientists and policy people and Everybody else comes to a table to try to discuss issues, kind of like what we do here at the foundation. But in 2008, I decided I wanted to go work for a nonprofit, and I'd already, I'd already been volunteering at Marsh Mania events and trash cleanups, and so I ended up, luckily I got a job here at the foundation, and uh, and it just kind of this my my position's relatively new. It's only we've only had this director of advocacy position for a few years now, but I was okay. working on freshwater inflows and you name it and and now i get to do more general advocacy but i've been working on this waste pit site and some other issues like storm surge mitigation the the whole ike dike issue so i'm sure we'll be talking again about uh, yeah that i imagine so yeah <laughs> and it, it and just so just to, you know wrap it all up i think it's important that you know roles that that you have and that i'm now in such a large component of it goes back to to education and you can't have, in my mind, you can't have conservation without education That's right. and spreading uh, spreading the truth to the to the public is so is so important. And I think you've done that today. And again. I appreciate it. Well, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, you can't have conservation without conversation. Yeah, that's right. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, All right. Thank man. you. Thank you. Appreciate Enjoyed it. it. That's it, folks. As Scott mentioned in the podcast, please submit a comment to the EPA and show your support for their plans to remove the toxic dioxins from this Superfund site. You only have until November 28th, so we really need to get those comments in today. Also, moving forward, I'm hoping to get an episode out every one to two weeks. We're just about to get into the thick of the flounder run, so we're going to definitely be discussing some flatty tactics and some of the unique characteristics of southern flounder. Oh, and... If you're not a member of CCA and you're interested in getting involved in some grassroots conservation efforts, be sure to log on to joincca.org and browse the site for how you can become active in coastal conservation efforts. And finally, thank you for listening and stay coastal.